If you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of California Underground. Your host, Phil. And today I have with me Mark Mauser, who is running for U.S. Senate. Uh, Mark and I are colleagues of sorts because we've both been on the front lines of a lot of these COVID constitutional battles. He is about a thousand times better at this stuff than I am. Um, so a lot of times I bounce a lot of stuff off of him. And um, yeah, so that's how we sort of got to know each other. He reached out to me recently and said, hey, um, can I come on your podcast? And I said, absolutely. I'd love to have a uh, U.S. Senate candidate on. And he's running for Alex Padilla's seat. Uh, which was vacated by our esteemed Vice President Kamala Harris, and here we are. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you for coming on. How's it going tonight? It's going great, and thanks for having me. Uh, it's And it's also thank you for the work that you've done in this fight for freedom. Uh, it hasn't gone unnoticed. Um, and, yes, I have enjoyed our conversations where we bounced ideas off of each other. It is important to, for people to know that this courts are not quick, Freedom is not free. And, you know, each each attorney who stepped up and did their part uh, in this fight for freedom has you know, done a very important service to this country. Unfortunately, <clears throat> if I had a thousand attorneys and an unlimited budget, I don't know that I could keep up with all the tyranny that we're facing right now. Yeah, it, it's sort of an uphill battle when it comes to a lot of these cases. And we can start off talking about that topic, about sort of our shared war stories in terms of y- you can have the best argument that makes sense, whether it's the U.S. Constitution or even the California Constitution. But a lot of times you're going up against counties, you're going up against the state who have unlimited resources, and they can just pound a lot of litigants into the ground to the point where they just throw up their hands and say, I, I, I'm done with it. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Even if they're fundraising or crowdsourcing, uh, a lot of clients will just kind of bow out and say, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and yes, that has been one of the problems. But actually, one of the biggest problems that we've had is the judiciary really abandoning the roots of <clears throat> liberty. Mm-hmm. You go back, you know, when we first, when COVID first happened. You know, the first thing I did is let's go look at this nation's history. Let's look at the court history and let's see how courts have handled pandemics. And there's a case in the 19 uh, early 1900s out of San Francisco where I believe it was nine people died of the bubonic plague. And the public health officer came in and said, we are cordoning off uh, Chinatown. You can't go to work. You can't go to school. You're shut down. Mm -hmm. And the federal courts came in and said, time out. We live in America. You cannot deprive somebody of their liberties unless you have probable cause that they are in fact have the bubonic plague. And so when all of a sudden counties started to shut down churches, I went rushing into court. Hey, this is what courts have said in the past. You can't shut down churches. You know, here's our all of our First Amendment law. And by the way, when public health officers tried to do this in the past, the court said, no way. 
And I thought we had open and shut slam dunk cases. But what we saw was these judges all of a sudden start making up constitutional law and creating new standards by which uh, counties and governments were allowed to do. And basically what we have seen is unfortunately many courts just siding with the government rather than being the referee and saying, wait a second, you can't deprive people's constitutional rights. The Constitution gives you as a government official certain limitations and you can't you know, step out of those. And unfortunately, many judges start to find a pandemic exception in the Constitution. And we took that all the way up to the Supreme Court. And uh, I have three I've been a part of three different legal teams that have had victories at the United States Supreme Court against Gavin Newsom. And a fourth case that we went up there on the OSHA vaccine mandates against uh, Joe Biden. Yeah, one of those cases, one of those wins was the Pentecostal church down here in San Diego County, which is probably one of the, my favorite Gorsuch opinions. Um, and I, I, I've said on past videos and past lives that he's sort of been like the quiet hero of a lot of this, and especially this past uh the OSHA mandate that he wrote on and uh, some of the dissents he's been a part of. He's been sort of a, a, a strong constitutionalist on a lot of this stuff. So it was good to see some of the the wins coming out of here in San Diego County. But I agree with you. And, and that's sort of the same thing I've seen in a lot of cases is that judges, especially around 2020, were very hesitant to rule against any sort of COVID mandates. I don't know if it was fear of retribution or they just didn't know or wash their hands of it, but it seemed like they didn't read any case law. It didn't matter what arguments you made. A lot of judges just looked at the stuff and said, well, we're in a pandemic so they can do whatever the heck they want. Yeah. And that's what, that was the biggest shock to me is, is just like, what do you mean the constitution doesn't mean anything? What do you mean we have 150 years of interpreting the constitution, limiting public health officers. And I mean, all these cases, you can't restrict somebody's right to travel. You can't restrict their ability to work, you know, and, and all of a sudden governments can do it. I mean, it was just a complete shock, uh, you know, to, you know, I've been used to this slowly sliding, you know, they say slow, you know, sliding to Sodom and Gomorrah that we've seen. But I mean, this was just a jump off the deep end and it really was a, whoa, we got serious problems here. Yeah. I think uh, Gorsuch said it best in this this last Supreme Court case that, or the opinion he handed down where and I'm paraphrasing here, basically saying if you allow governments to use these emergencies as an end run around the Constitution, the government will always find an emergency to end run around the Constitution. We have to be careful of that. So agree. I couldn't I couldn't agree with that more. I you know, it was very well said, Gorsuch. <laughs> yeah. Good that's job on Gorsuch, boy. Yeah, but that's kind of what riled me out of the practice of law and moved me towards, well, yes, I'm still doing the practice of law, but moved me towards running for U.S. Senate. Because, you know, in our Constitution, it guarantees to us a Republican form of government. And a part of a Republican form of government is that we select the elected officials who pass the laws which govern us. And mm -hmm. what we've seen here 
over the last two years is unelected public health officers making the laws that we are governed by. And uh, we have seen the executives, you know, governors and presidents, basically enforcing their rules as if it's law. And that is not what our balance of powers were meant to be. It's not how you live in a Republican form of government. And so it became very clear that there's several things that we need to do. Number Mm -hmm. one, every regulation passed by the administrative state cannot be enforced until it goes to the Congress and gets passed there. You got to have that level of accountability. You cannot have your duly elected officials who are supposed to pass the laws that we are governed by saying, oh, there's nothing I can do. It's the, you know, OSHA did it. No, you get, you have the last word. And as a Congressman, if it's determined that that regulation doesn't work out, you can undo it. We got to return the power back to Congress. Number two, if these government agencies have this much free time on their hand that they could be thinking up new ways to deprive Americans of their constitutional rights, it's time that their budget gets cut. Maybe we don't need as many administrations. Maybe we don't need as many employees. Maybe they've outgrown their their task of what they were tasked to do. I mean, the Supreme Court made it very clear. OSHA never had this authority and they were just trying to create new authority and they need to suffer the consequences for that. Their budget needs to be trimmed. Their their authority needs to be trimmed and that needs to happen at the, at Congress. And so as a constitutional attorney who's been on the front lines, 22 lawsuits against Gavin Newsom, lawsuits against governors in other states, and of course, uh, Joe Biden, it became clear that I needed to take my fight for people's constitutional rights from the courthouse to the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, it's uh, it's scary to me, and I often refer to it as the fourth branch of government, which is now the administrative state. And a lot of Congress just has abdicated their duties as actual legislators to the point where they write laws that are very vague and then they just kind of pass the bulk bulk of all their work onto these administrative bodies, the alphabet soup agencies, to figure it out and they write the laws. They really write what happens to people and what the rules become. And it's not really the legislators themselves because they don't know they don't necessarily want to be held accountable for a lot of laws because if they're too specific, they can say, Hey, you voted on this law. We don't like it because you specifically did this. Instead, they want to make it as broad as possible to kind of hand off to the administrative agencies. Very true. Very true. I can't argue with that one bit. So what you you jumped into this race for the US Senate. Uh, what, what, what kind of goaded you to go that route as opposed to any other race going on here in California? Well, in 2018, I was the Republican candidate for secretary of state. So I actually have, uh, somewhat of a, uh, statewide name recognition. Um, and, you know, and that's what, you know, I, I knew that I had somewhat of a, 
you know, a statewide network, statewide name recognition. I have media contacts up and down the state. I have volunteers up and down the state. And, you know, I, it was just when we were looking at, you know, what can you do? I didn't necessarily live in the most uh, conservative congressional district. Um, and it was like, well, we got to fix this problem on the federal level. Uh, so it's Congress or U.S. Senate. And there's just open U.S. Senate seat that was vacated by Kamala Harris. Uh, yes, Alex Padilla has been appointed. But the day <clears throat> I win this election on November 8th, I actually get sworn in to the Senate because it is a vacated seat. So uh, I don't wait till January 3rd. I actually take I take office the very next day. Wow. So let's let's walk through the uh, strategy and the path forward. We were talking about this before we hopped on sort of the winning strategy you're going to need because the U.S. Senate is a statewide seat and it's no secret that it is a state where it's a two to one advantage for Democrats to Republicans when it comes to voter registration. Um, on a statewide level, first, you got to get out of the jungle primary and onto the ballot and then you got to win the race. So what's the path forward look like starting with the jungle primary? Uh, right now, there are approximately 28 people in the race. Um, Alex Padilla has the most name recognition uh, in the race, but his name recognition is actually very low for a uh, for an individual who has held elected office in the state for over, well, he's been a statewide official for over eight years, but before that he had uh, other elected officials and he has very 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 low name recognition in the state um the second the second person who has the most name recognition is myself and i am significantly more name recognition than anyone else of the other 28 names uh even the most politically astute people do not really know who the names are it's kind of like your governor's badge ballot for the recall you knew three or four names and you didn't know anybody else in this race, you probably know Alex Padilla and myself and the odds of you knowing any other name is actually very, very low. Um, and, and that's, that's, so that's currently the status. Of course, that can change over the next four or five months. We're doing our part, our, uh, getting out there, raising money, uh, traveling up and down the state, uh, attending rallies, attending speaking events, getting on the media, doing podcasts such as this as this one right here, uh, and just getting our message out of what we stand for. So that's going to be the important stuff to get through this top two that we are dealing with. Um, and then the second part of your question, I'll answer in a second, but I, that, that's, that's what we have to do to get through the, the first part. Are there any other... Is anybody challenging from his own party, Alex Padilla? Again, there are there are names of people who have a D after their name, uh, mm -hmm. but there's nobody that I have seen who uh, has a uh, been held elected office or has multi billions of dollars in their pocket or. Uh, or anybody that uh, you know is a, a celebrity and just going to have a lot of name recognition. There, yes, there are D's, um, but they're okay. just—they're not. They're like, yeah, they're probably more fringe people, and they're not backed by the establishment anyway. Yeah, 
Um, and I, I think, you know, in my educated opinion, I think what is going on is everybody knows that in 2024, Dianne Feinstein most likely is going to be stepping down. And if you are a Democrat and you challenge Alex Padilla, who was appointed to the office by Gavin Newsom, you're going to now have Gavin Newsom, Alex Padilla, and the whole establishment after you when you try to run again in 2024. And so it seems to me that the, uh, any Democrat who really wants to have that U.S. Senate seat in 2024 is keeping their powder dry and not uh, not uh, crossing swords with the establishment. This is a smart play. So you're out of the jungle primary. Now you're going toe-to-toe with Alex Padilla. And... I've talked about this a little, a, a lot in the past on a lot of podcasts is because of the voter registration gap, you, there is sort of a sense of you're going to have to win by addition. Would you agree with that in the sense that you're going to have to win by getting independents, probably moderate Democrats? Um, is, is there, a, do you have a plan for that? And if so, what's your plan to kind of reach out across the aisle to those voters? Well, First off, my campaign did a very extensive uh, polling data of the state of California. And one thing that we found that among California Democrats, my favorabilities are 47 percent. Forty seven percent of Democrats have a favorable view of me. And I think it has a lot to do with I'm out here fighting for people's constitutional rights. I'm fighting for the mama bears. I'm fighting for. Uh, people to keep their jobs, the small business owners to keep their businesses. And that is something that crosses party lines. Yes, there are the totalitarians, the communists, the socialists who want to get rid of the U.S. Constitution. They do not. They want to have a, you know, authoritarian uh, oligarchy, whatever term you want to use. They do not like the limitations of a of a federal constitution. And they're never going to support me. They're never going to like me. But what we are actually seeing is what I call a five-part wave election in 2022. The first aspect of that wave election comes from Joe Biden being in the White House. If you look at California elections over the last 40 years, when there is a Democrat in the White House, the off-term, midterm elections, there is at least a 10-point swing in the state of California, at least. So that's the base of this 2022 wave election. Now, there are four other things that are going to happen that are going to amplify that wave. The second item is this Hispanic vote swing. You've probably been seeing multiple articles in the uh, Wall Street Journal and other leading newspapers that are talking about this swing that is happening with the Hispanics, that they are leaving the Democrat Party. And we saw a little bit of this with the recall Gavin Newsom, where we saw polling data here in California that 54% of Hispanics wanted Gavin gone. But what ended up happening is 2.5 million Hispanics who voted in the 2020 election decided not to vote in the recall. Now, there's many reasons why they did not vote, 
But one of the reasons is the Republican Party, because of the nature of this recall election, didn't really have an active get out the vote effort. We didn't, you know, it was up to each of the campaigns, but the campaigns, they only had a few weeks to do anything. And so unfortunately, you didn't have the typical Republican Party infrastructure going out there and knocking on doors and making sure people got out to vote. And that is one of the elements that was missing in the recall that will not be a problem in 2022. And so with this Hispanic swing that is starting to happen, according to my research and looking at the state of California, within the next 10 years, 30 of the 52 congressional seats, I believe, are going to be held by Republicans because of this Hispanic swing that is taking place. So that's the second amplifier that we're dealing with. The third amplifier that we're dealing with, uh, I just call them the mama bears. Because of COVID, parents are realizing that their children are not getting the education that they received. And they're Mm -hmm. upset. And it doesn't matter. As I've traveled the state of California, I've been all the way up in Crescent City and all the way down in San Diego. I've been in rich white neighborhoods and I've been poor ethnic minority neighborhoods. I have been in in front of Republicans, I've been in front of Democrats. It doesn't matter. This issue of education crosses party lines. And what we are seeing is the mama bears are the mo- are the least likely to be participating in the election system. And what they realize is that they cannot in 2022 not participate. And so there's this vast number of people who have typically stayed out of the elections who are already very active in the elections. And so that's the third that's or the second enhancement to the red wave that we're going to be looking at. And, you know, because of the work that I've been doing and helping people uh, recall school boards and I've been speaking at uh, these, I just call them mama bear meetings, you know, talking about what they can do politically, what they can do legally and helping them with recalls and all that kind of stuff. Because of my work that I've been doing there, I have diehard Democrat educators who are supporting my campaign. This, again, it's just something that is crossing party lines right now because people realize that the system that's in place right now is just not working. The next amplifier that we are looking at is national security. And whether it is the smash and grabs that we are seeing right now, whether it's district attorneys not enforcing the law, whether it's what is going on at the southern border, people do not feel safe living in America. And they are looking at who is the party in control, and they're going, I don't like this. I need to do something about it. So that's the next amplifier. The final amplifier is the economy. People know that they're paying more in gas. They know that they're getting double-digit inflation. They know that stuff is missing on their uh, at the grocery store. They see that they can't buy a car. They understand that our economy is broken right now. And we it hasn't been broken like this since the late 1970s. And they know what who the party in 
power is. And this is just a further amplification of that base 10 point red wave that we're gonna have. And so when you put all these together, the analogy I use is up in San Francisco, there is a famous uh, surfing tournament, the Mavericks. And you never know when that tournament is going to be because you're on standby. And when they look at the meteorological data and they go, the big waves are coming. They'll be here in 72 hours. The call goes out and surfers from around the world descend upon San Francisco. And, you know, all these people go down to watch the, the Mavericks and they experience the Mavericks. That's what we are right now in January. What I just laid out is we have the conditions that are going to create a massive wave election that could very likely cost Gavin Newsom his job. Will, will a lot of congressmen, U.S. senators, state senators, state assemblymen, city councils, county supervisors, people who thought that they had a safe seat are all of a sudden going to find out that the, the voters have decided it's time that we get rid of these tyrants. I think those are all spot on. I, I, I agree with all of them. And I, I've been following a lot of these trends as well. And I, I, I think that's why it's such a huge opportunity right now. And there's a huge opportunity window in California to reach a lot of voters and start to turn this thing around. And maybe two or three years ago, well, now it's probably more than three years ago, before COVID, when I was doing this podcast, nobody really cared. You know, I I didn't have as many people following, not a lot of, you had the political wonks following just California politics. But now I've seen a lot more of the mama bears, as you call them. Um, I call them BAMs, badass moms. Um, I've seen a lot more Hispanic followers um, reaching out to me. And there is this window of people who were never engaged in politics, who never really cared who their state assemblyman or their state senator or who their congressional person was. But now they're now they're really intensely focused on who those people are. So there's a lot of people who are focusing on even their school board. A lot of people didn't even know who's on their school board. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to school board meetings every chance they get. Oh, yeah. Um, Big time. So I, I, I think there's a lot more political activism right now, thanks to COVID. And I think it's it's sort of like catching lightning in a bottle here in California, where we have to take this opportunity and make sure we do the most with it. And the one criticism I have of the California GOP right now is it seems to be just a, the party, the contrarian party, where it can't just be, well, we're the photo negative of Democrats. And we're, we're just whatever the Democrats do, we're not going to do that. We're going to do the opposite. Um, how, how do you get your message across to, to give voters the positive message that they want to support and get behind instead of just going, well, look at all these Democrats over here who ruined your life, who ruined the economy. We're not them. So vote for us. 
Yeah, and that's a very important lesson. If you go back to 1994, I know I'm going to be a little wonkish here, but if you go back to 1994, you had contract with America, and the Republicans had a broad plan of what they stood for. You elect us. This is what we are going to do. And if you look at the state of California, there was a, you know, the red wave hit the state of California. You know, we elected, uh, I think, half the congressional districts were Republicans. Half of the, the Senate seats were Republicans. Half of the assembly seats were Republicans. Most of the statewide offices were, were Republicans because Republicans had a message of what they stood for. Mm-hmm. You go to 2010, the Tea Party, the anti-Obama year. You had a red wave. It hit across the entire nation, but it stopped at the Sierras. Californians do not want to just vote anti this or anti that, that they want a positive message. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy has already announced that the Republican platform for 2022 is commitment to America. And we're going to be talking about national security. We're going to be talking about what we can do in education. We're going to be talking about what we can do on the economy. Those are going to be the issues that we are out there talking about. You know, because I'm running for U.S. Senate, I have, you know, many different people running for Congress across the state. And I I spend a lot of time talking to various uh, congressional candidates in the state of California. Uh, And, you know, I ask them, what are you going to run on? And almost without fail, every one of them is talking about the economy, national security and education. And I think you're going to see that there is a unified message that is building right now, you know, and you may not fully see it until June after we get done with the primaries. And, you know, if you go back to contract with America, if you study that history, what you're going to have seen is that in 93, Hillary Clinton was doing her bus tour promoting socialized medicine. And the people reacted and and Newt Gingrich start C-SPAN had just got started. And what he did is he had the uh, representatives go on the floor of the House and start making speeches. And those speeches were now being covered by C-SPAN. And it was attack, 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 softening up the enemy. And then when May and June came around and you had contract with America, everybody flipped and started talking about the positive message. And I'm I'm hopeful that that's kind of what you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of Gavin Newsom doesn't wear his mask at the football game. Why is your kid having to wear a mask at school? You're going to see a lot of, you know, look at. Uh, Joe Biden is sending nine, you know, thousands of troops to Ukraine, but he won't send any troops to protect our border. You know, the the highlighting of the hypocrisy of the left is going on right now. But it's my belief that when we get to this summer, after we get done with these uh, 
primaries, the top two, I think you're going to see a positive message with Republicans focusing in on what we stand for. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because I think that's that's how you're going to win over a lot of voters who in this state have opened their minds a little bit. Um, you know, I've talked to Democrats who never voted Republican, voted straight, straight red in 2020, voted for Trump. They didn't think they would. Um, and there's a lot of people who are kind of opening up to different possibilities. So I think it, it's definitely a good, good opportunity and they definitely have to take a chance at sending that positive message out because pointing out the hypocrisy is, is fine for political commentators like me on social media where we can make memes about it. But when it comes to your politicians who are running and need to get voted in, I think they want to see the actual positive change um, and the difference of, well, if I vote for this guy over this guy or gal, um, I'm going to get this or this is how I expect life to be after this person wins and represents me in, in the U.S. Senate, correct? Yeah, I think you summarized that pretty good. So speaking of the GOP, and then we can touch upon this real quick. You mentioned that Gavin Newsom could be in danger of losing his seat, um, yet we haven't seen a a big name contender coming out yet against Gavin Newsom. Do you predict there'll be a big name contender coming out of the the woodworks? If it's not an A lister, it's going to be at least a you know a B plus A minus. I I, I think you're going to see a bigger name drop in the race in the next. Uh, uh, 10 days. Okay. That's a pretty accurate sort of uh, prediction right there over under. Um, we, we were talking before and I, I, I've had this goal of having a lot of people on who are state candidates. Last week I had Cole Bricado on. He's running for state assembly. Uh, people who are running for state senators, mostly because I want to focus on state politics. Makes You're sense. The- California underground. That's true. You're you're one of the few, and I, I couldn't pass up the the chance to interview a candidate for the U.S. Senate. That's sort of big time. Um, what are some of the top issues when you get to the U.S. Senate that you want to focus on at the federal level? As I, you know, started talking about, we got to rein in this unelected bureaucracy. I mean, I think it's one of the, if we want to preserve our republic. We got to rein in this unelected bureaucracy. We got to return power to um, our congressional delegation. They cannot abdicate their jobs anymore. And, you know, that I think is a critical, critical, critical thing. The second thing, we're going to have to balance our budget. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Because when we spend more money than we take in, all we're doing is printing more money. Now we got to pay the interest on that because we borrowed more money. We have to pay the interest on that money. So we print more paper. Now we have more interest we have to pay. And this cycle that's going on, there is going to reach a point where it's going to absolutely destroy this nation's economy. I was in Moscow, Russia in 1992. In the 10 weeks that I was there, I saw the ruble go from 57 rubles per dollar to over 3,000 
rubles per dollar. Where Russian workers would get done with their work, they would take their paycheck and they would run to the stores and they would buy whatever they could because their money was worthless the next day. And that, you know, you all you have to do is study history. Every economy, you cannot borrow your way into prosperity. Right now, we are experiencing a slight level of prosperity. You know, the budget in California is doing pretty well. But why is that? It's because of the trillions of dollars that was spent under the name of COVID. Unfortunately, that has now gone into the economy. The state is getting that money. But what happens is this, they, they can't continue to print that kind of money to just boot, continue to boost the economy. And so unfortunately, the COVID spending is driving us to the fiscal cliff even sooner. So what we have to do is we have to make sure we balance our budget. We're going to have to go in there and we're going to have to look at every single department. And rather than say, okay, you get uh, your budget that you had last year plus an extra 5%. We can't do that. We're going to have to, every year, we're going to have to look at three or four different departments and we're going to have to, you know, kick the can and just look at every single aspect of it. And we're going to have to pare back the budgets um, because if we don't do that, if we don't make the, the tough decisions today, we're going to be like Greece where we're going to, where our creditors are going to force us to make the decisions. And we don't want to be in the position where China is telling the United States of America where we can spend our money and where we can't do, because that will not look good. It, it won't look good. And I can guarantee you that they're going to make sure that we don't spend the money in ways that will make us strong. They're going to make sure that we can't spend money on our military. They're going to make sure that we don't spend money uh, in our economy to help our businesses that compete with China. Uh, they're going to force us to open up our ports even more. It's going to be an ugly situation. And, you know, China owns so much of United States debt and we're going to have to make sure that they're not the ones controlling the austerity measures that United States has to live by. Well, I guess that's a perfect segue because that was going to be my next question was, as a U.S. senator, what are your thoughts on China and, and what can you do as a U.S. senator to kind of push back on China? Because they have become sort of the global antagonist, it seems. And, you know, the Olympics are starting tonight. I, I didn't watch the opening ceremony because... I, I can't believe that they're putting the Olympics back in Beijing again, but that's a whole different story. Um, so what can you do as U.S. Senator when it comes to pushing back on China? Well, uh, you know, granted treaty powers, uh, you have to ratify all treaties. Um, that is something the Senator does. You know, I think the biggest thing is, you know, peace through strengths. Mm -hmm. But, we do not have strength when we do not have a sound economy, when we do not have a sound dollar, when we are not independent, energy independent. There are things that we can do as a legislature uh, to make sure that we have a sound economy here in the United States, where we have 
energy independence where we uh, where we you know we don't have to have nuclear war with China, but if we have a strong military, you know they're going to fear it. Now China is not trying to take United States on militarily. They're trying to do it through technology. They're trying to do it through trade. And we have to understand those issues, you know, and we have to, you know, ultimately, I'd like to say we, we need to go back and look at the basics. If you go back to the United States Constitution and how our nation was founded, one of the things that we did is the major source of tax revenue came from tariffs. And the problem got messed up because Congress wanted to carve out certain niche markets, you know, because lobbyists from such and such a market said, give us a special tariff rate or, you know, you know, the, the cotton farmers say, you know, Hey, we want you to increase the tariff on uh, manufactured cloth coming in from England. So that way we're able to make more money. If you have a fair and uniform tariff, on all trade and you don't start picking and choosing winners and losers, uh, that is one way you can start leveling this playing field and making it so that it's more competitive for American employers to employ American workers and to keep those jobs here in America, to keep that uh, our reliance upon America rather than having to rely on a massive trade deficit with China because every year we have a, a trade deficit with China, with China, their goods are coming here and our gold is going there. And you can't, you know, that deficit is eventually going to come up and hurt us. And because they're taking that gold and they're now buying our debt and it's a cycle that cannot last. So I know everybody likes to talk about free trade, but if you go back to the basics, a, you know, a sound tariff on trade coming in from foreign countries is one thing that we could do to ensure that we have a, a solid economy. And it is also a way to cut the taxes on the middle class, on the working families, so that they're not having to work two jobs just to make ends meet. So I'm assuming you know, you're, you're happy that running in this election, you are not uh, subject to HR one, the vote for the people or whatever act uh, that was killed in the Senate due to a filibuster. Uh, and that was sort of the whole controversy about the filibuster. And it became this whole, of course they threw the race card in there and why the filibuster is horrible. Um, Explain a little bit about the filibuster in the Senate and why it's important, or do you believe it's it's necessary? Do you believe it should be there? Um, what are your thoughts on the filibuster as a potential future senator? One of my favorite movies is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And, great movie. You know, the way how the filibuster used to work is if you were, if you were filibustering, you actually had to help hold the floor. Now, unfortunately, it's become this procedural game. If if we have 40 votes, you're not going to bring it to the floor. And so it's become this 40-60 uh, rule. And, you know, the, the thing is, you know, people make the argument that, you know what, you know, 
if you control the Senate, the House, and the presidency, you should be able to get your agenda through. It shouldn't be uh, waylaid by a minority of individuals. For me, I actually would like to see us move back to the old principles of the filibuster where one person could hold the floor or a group of senators could hold the floor. And we had some long filibusters that lasted months back in those times. And so it becomes a, it changes the dynamics, you know, rather than, oh, there's a filibuster. So we're going to just move on with business and nobody actually articulates and debates these issues. That's not really good for the nation. But when you force them to filibuster, now the news becomes about what the debate is. And you actually bring the issue in front of the people. And so even though the Republicans are in the minority right now in the state of or in, in the in DC, um, if the Democrats wanted to push the you know the election issue, fine. You push it. There's no procedural gimmick that's going to stop it. What's going to stop it is the 50 U.S. senators standing up and holding the floor as long as they can. So you would get Ted Cruz, who would hold the floor for 12, 14, 15, 16 hours. And then he would yield to Mike Lee, who holds it for a period of time. And then he gives it to, you know, Rand Paul, and then Lindsey Graham gets up there, and Rubio gets up there, and you, and they would have to hold the floor, and as long as they're holding that floor, as long as they're willing to debate that issue, the decision is up to the American people to let their legislatures know, stop, the, stop filibustering and just let it vote, or mm-hmm. in this thing, we don't want this we don't, we don't like it because the more they're talking about it, the more they're showing what's wrong with this particular piece of legislation. So, again, I'm a little old-fashioned. I'm going back to Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I would actually rather see a actual filibuster rather than a procedural uh, filibuster. That being said, I would have been one of the, the people voting to keep the filibuster in place and not allow – uh, this bill to get to the floor, um, you know, because that's the rules that we're under right now. Yeah, it always seems that they they push these. It was sort of like Harry Reid with the nuclear option um, when it came to Supreme Court judicial nominees. And now it came back to bite them in the butt when Trump won and he was able to pick three different justices. Um, I, I thought that it was odd that they'd want to get rid of the filibuster in a year that looked like they were most likely going to lose both houses of Congress when that would just allow Republicans to just really push through as many bills as possible. Not that president Biden would sign them, but if someone took over in 2024, it's a whole different ball game. Um, there was an interesting, and this was just a side note. Yeah. I was listening to Marjorie Taylor green on uh, Tim Pool's show. And I was never really a big fan of Marjorie Taylor green. I always thought she was sort of out there. But she did bring up something interesting about how she called, she started calling for recorded votes in the House. And before it used to be, they would just do their voice votes and they would just vote from wherever. But a recorded vote was where they actually had to come in. Every member of the House had to show up 
sit in their seat and they actually had to get their votes on record. So it was sort of interesting, the idea that a lot of our representatives don't actually go into the chambers and do anything with this legislation. They just kind of do it by proxy or do it electronically. So um, I'd like to see a lot more of what it was originally intended, which is get them all in a room, debate, yell at each other, do whatever. But that's how it should be. It should be out in the open for everybody to see. Yeah, quorum calls. Quorum you know, call. Yeah, they, they don't uh, seem to like to do those quorum calls, but uh, it's it's the way you know when you're having a filibuster, you you call for a quorum, and it uh, forces everybody you know to come back into the Senate and hear the debate. And they slowly. I remember when I think it was Ted Cruz's uh, 24 hour filibuster, there was a couple times that he called for a quorum. It gave him a few minutes of rest where he didn't have to speak or anything like that. Uh, well, they went and got enough senators to come back in so that there was a, a quorum and the Senate could continue their business. And it's that it's, it's quite interesting if, if you're going to start holding the floor for a long period of time when it's quorum calls. Uh, you're going to wear out a lot of people. A lot of people are going to get upset. Yeah. Um, final question, and, and we'll, we'll let you go because uh, between your law practice and running for U.S. Senate, I'm sure you got a lot on your plate. Um, speaking of what you can do with the Harry Reid nuclear option and your role as a senator, assuming that a pick does not reach the Senate until November, which is when you could be sworn in, what is your thoughts on what you would be looking for in a Supreme Court justice and how would it be not even close to what President Biden is probably going to pick anyway? We have to, you know, the person who is at a judge who is at a Supreme Court level, I want to know that they actually understand what the United States Constitution means. Do they actually understand the limitations that it puts on the government? Do they understand that it, that our Constitution is we the people gave our elected officials this responsibility to govern us within limitations? And if I see anything that indicates that the judge does not understand that the Constitution is designed to limit government, I, I'm going to vote against them. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to question them very, you know, why should you be, you know, if you're going to swear to uphold the Constitution, but you don't understand what the Constitution is, why do you deserve to be a, you know, on the Supreme Court? Or why do you deserve to be a, in a court of appeals? Or why do you... Uh, why are you going to be a district judge if you don't understand the the basic fundamental principles of the Constitution? Uh, America does not need you being a referee calling when the government, whether or not the government has overstrayed its borders, its boundaries. I mean, that would be my pick as well. Um favorite supreme court justice in in all, history for all, all time all time i'm split joseph story and john marshall hmm. okay i mean i would have gone with the popular one myself probably scalia but 
Okay. I'm well, I, as you see my books, I, I do I do love my uh, history. And I do have right here Joseph Story's uh, commentaries on the Constitution. Uh, I'm add that to my my reading list. You know, Joseph Story and John Marshall were there for a long time in the very beginning. And so if you understand those two justices, you actually really have a good understanding of the balance of government and what the court's role was supposed to be, you know, as they kind of developed what the court was and the limitations. Uh, you know, I, you know, Joseph Story was on the court. I, I, I he may, he may not be the longest now, but I think he was on it for like 46 years or something like that. And then Marshall was the, you know, the third chief justice. He was on there for a long time and really helped frame the court's roles. Now we've strayed a long ways from the Marshall and Story courts, but you, by understanding them, you actually have a better understanding of what our founding fathers intended our constitutional uh our constitutional republic to look like and what the role of the judiciary was. I'm definitely going to have to add that to my list because I love wonking out on history books and commentary on constitution as well. Um, and I'm sure I just throwing this out there. This is for a whole different time. We could be super wonky about it. I think they should repeal the 17th amendment, but that's just my personal opinion about popular vote for senators doesn't change your race coming up this November, but that's just my personal feeling. Um, about. In 2018, when I ran for secretary of state, um, there was a group of us uh, statewide candidates uh, that was up in Del Norte County for a Lincoln Reagan dinner in Crescent city. And the next morning we had a breakfast in uh, Santa Rosa. And so we got done with our event about 10, 11 o'clock at night, got in the van and we were driving down. And the question became, what was the most destructive constitutional amendment? And one person took up the income tax and I took up the direct election of the U.S. Senator. And we basically spent three hours going toe to toe on that argument as to which one was the most destructive uh, constitutional amendment. And I, I, to this day, I believe that the most destructive one was where you removed the checks and balances of the state being able to check the federal government because when the U.S. Senator was accountable to the state legislature, what that meant is that your state legislature could, could tell the state could tell the U.S. Senator, uh, we don't, don't like that. What do you mean this unfunded mandate? No. Yeah. And it would actually recall uh, U.S. Senators. They'd say, "You are stepping down. You're stepping down now." And we are, you know, we do not. You, you were, yeah, you're technically appointed for a six-year term, but you had no guarantee that you had a six-year term because you had a, le a state legislature that if they got ticked off of what you were doing, you were gone. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, with, and so I personally believe that the importance of checks and balances, that it was a major check on the federal government having the states 
having a say in one of the three uh, branches of which a legislation had to go through, uh, you know, now basically your U.S. senators are, you know, yeah, you got two of them for a state, but they're accountable to the people and they're just they're just as partisan as the as the House. Well, the House was supposed to be for the people. The Senate was supposed to represent the states and you're not representing the states when you're directly elected. So, yes, you are correct. It's not going to affect me. I'm going to be voted on by we the people. But I do actually support a constitutional amendment that removes the direct election of uh, senators from the people. And I think it needs to go back to the legislature. No, I, I, you nailed every single point that I always bring up to people. And a lot of people kind of, if they're not wonky like us, and I kind of say, well, we should repeal the 17th Amendment. They kind, their eyes kind of gloss over and they're like, what? And I'm like, it used to be the state legislatures had a voice in the federal government. They no longer have that voice, which means we've been centralizing power more and more and more in the federal government and looking to the federal government to uh, solve all of our problems rather than our state legislatures, which are also very important because they write the laws that you deal with on a daily basis. Um, the other reason I think is because it isn't a accurate representation of a lot of the states. And I thought a lot about this after 2020, when you saw two democratic far left senators come out of Georgia, when Georgia has a Republican state legislature and you go, this doesn't seem to add up because the people in Georgia voted for Republican state legislature, but now they have two far left blue Democrats. Um, there's other examples in states as well. Arizona has two Democratic senators, even though they have a Republican state legislature. Um, so that's that's my thoughts, and I completely agree with all your points. So, yeah, it's a uh, people don't realize, you know. Hey, I want to personally vote for them. Actually, you know, it's a lot easier to control your state legislature. And it's mm-hmm. a lot easier for your state legislature to control a U.S. senator. You know, the state yeah. of California, 40 million people. Hey, U.S. senator, I don't like what you have to say. Uh, I don't, yeah, you don't represent me. Well, who cares? I got 39 other, pe- 39 other million people who do care. But, you know, all of a sudden, one state legislature who gets ticked off, you know, it's real easy for them to start you know, rallying their friends together. And, uh, and also, you know, it's also quite interesting, the dynamics. Um, I think if you go back to the 18, I want to say it's the 50, 1856 election in Illinois for U.S. Senator. Um, this was two years before the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Mm-hmm. And the state was split between the slave faction and the anti-slave faction. But what you had in 1856 is you had Democrats that were pro-slavery and Democrats that were anti-slavery. And so while the anti-slave faction had the majority, it was made up of the Whigs, and Democrat anti-slave, and then you have the Democrat slave caucuses. And so you actually had three different groups trying to figure out who the next U.S. senator was. 
And Lincoln mm-hmm. was the leading choice for the Republican slash Whigs faction, but he had to relinquish it because there was no way he was going to get the Democrat anti-slavery faction to vote for him. And so there ended up having to be a compromised candidate that came out to be the U.S. Senator for the state of Illinois so that in a slavery, uh, a pro-slavery candidate didn't end up going. And uh, when you have legislators, they're more likely to be a more moderate candidate that's going to be sent rather than the ultra fringe candidates versus a direct elected primary it's usually the most fringe candidates on both sides of the aisle tend to make it through the top two and the reason for that is because those fringe people are you know they have their dedicated volunteer base who are donating and everything like that and they get them there well the problem is so you can get through a primary that way and now, like you talked about Georgia, you had two very fringe Democrat candidates that really, because of party politics and party vote, do not represent even a majority of Georgians. Mm-hmm. You had the state legislature that is now making that decision. You're you're going to have okay, you got your fringe uh, legislatures, but they're not the whole thing. You're going to have to. You're going to have to wheel and deal and, you know, maybe your first candidate doesn't get it. Maybe become second, third, fourth, fifth ballots. You, it's going to be the odds are you're going to have much more reasoned candidates who end up coming out of that system versus the, the fringe candidates. Yeah. And the best way to put it is that senators now are basically representatives of urban areas, the, the cities, because that's who elects them. It's not people in the country or anything like that it's it's the they go after where the votes are they go to the cities they win the cities and they basically only represent the views of the cities not anything outside the cities exactly Um, so well i I was glad we got to have that wonky conversation it's one of my favorite wonky topics um i think for me that was a softball that i just i hope i hit right out of the park yeah, it's it's you you nailed every single point that I make about the Seventeenth Amendment. Um, so I'm glad I found a kindred spirit who also believes that the Seventeenth Amendment should be repealed, and it was better the other way around. Um, and for people who are listening, who just got a crash course in the Seventeenth Amendment and why it should be repealed, um, Mark, I don't want to keep you much longer. You've been gracious enough to stay on for for a full hour. Um, where can people go learn more about you, support your campaign? Well, thank you for that. They can go to markmoiser.com, M-A-R-K-M-E-U-S-E-R.com. That's www.markmoiser.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, again, it's just my name, Mark Moiser. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you on the campaign trail as I travel up and down the state of California as I take my fight for your constitutional rights from the courthouse to the U.S. Capitol. Great. Thank you, Mark. And if you want to come on closer to election, we'd love to have you on. Let's see if we can make it happen. Great. Have a great night, Mark. See ya.
Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 